Hello, and welcome to Noise in the Groove. I'm Ramsey Giannini, and this is episode 15, Lost in Transylvania. In the last episode, we spoke about the life, death, and phonographic resurrection of the great poet Robert Browning. I want to begin this episode by talking about the death of one more public figure from the late Victorian era, namely one Henry Edward Manning, who was a cardinal and a Roman Catholic Archbishop of Westminster. He might not be a household name nowadays, but in his lifetime he was renowned for being a friend of the Pope and an influence on the direction of modern Catholicism. His last illness and death was a newsworthy event at the time, but we wouldn't be talking about him were it not for a curious detail about his last days. Let's open the Birmingham Daily Post in the Year of the Lord, 1894. As we read the paper over breakfast, we come across an article called The Last Message of Cardinal Manning. The article tells two stories. Firstly, it describes Cardinal Manning in the months before his death, confined largely to his rooms at the Archbishop's house in Westminster. According to the writer, the Cardinal, having nearly been photographed to death, agreed to have a phonogram taken of his voice to share a last message with those he'd never see again. The second part of the article describes what happened with that recording after he died. Cardinal Vaughan, Manning's successor, found the cylinder of Manning's voice among Manning's possessions and contacted who else but Gouraud to organize a reproduction of the message. Gouraud happily arranged a ceremony to play back the Cardinal's farewell message, which was attended by an assortment of ladies, lords, representatives of the Prime Minister, various ambassadors, and other notable figures. In small groups, the guests listened to the phonogram through ear tubes. The article reports, The marvelous strength and clearness of the voice came forth, slowly, solemnly, deliberately, and with long pauses of thought. To all who come after me, I hope that no words of mine, written or spoken in my life, will be found to have done harm to anyone after I'm dead. Well, he hasn't hurt me, I don't think. I've never been able to find this recording, and I can only presume that it hasn't survived, although perhaps it's still out there somewhere, waiting for its transformation into the ones and zeros of digital reality. In any case, we can't hear it at the moment, but we can talk about it. The event closely mirrored the earlier Browning anniversary in many respects. Gouraud again was a key figure in the proceedings, and the listening format again featured listeners surrounding the machine with ear tubes. However, unlike with the Browning incident, there was no great public outcry about the event, and matters of decency didn't seem to be a concern. The main reason for this difference in reaction, I believe, was due to the fact that in the Manning ceremony, the recording was of words intended to be transmitted from the living Manning to the dead. Ah, uh, sorry, reverse that. From the dead Manning to the living. As a result, the service felt appropriate and genuine. The sentimental, composed, and hopeful message matched the expectations of a memorial event, and in turn, almost every commentary from the time reflected on the beauty and novelty of the experience. A contributor to the speaker suggested that had Manning merely written the words, his testimony would have had none of the force of an actual voice coming, as it were, from beyond the grave. It didn't matter that the writer, we can assume, had not personally heard the recording himself. The fact that the medium of the message was a voice after death is what was significant. The writer adds, The imagination is rarely touched so strongly as by this imprisonment of human accents in an ingenious piece of mechanism. And later, what solace to a desolate heart could we compare with that which would be ministered by the sound of a voice that is still? Reason would tell us that the words which came from the phonograph were a mechanical repetition. But the words are of no account, 
It is the voice itself that is a priceless treasure which death has been unable to wrest from us. Here again we find that Tennyson phrase, the sound of a voice that is still. And I think it's high time we listen to the sound of that voice that is still. In 1890, Gouraud recorded Tennyson performing The Charge of the Light Brigade, which he intended to use for a fundraising event for survivors of the famous charge. Like an old NES cartridge, let's blow out the dust and give that cylinder another spin. You might want to pause and pull up the poem first, as it's a bit hard to understand the words from the recording. And do listen out for a rhythmic thumping sound that comes into the recording. It's thought that Tennyson may have added that himself to emphasize the power and rhythm of the horses. Well, I'm not sure what your thoughts were, but Tennyson's son Hallam, hearing the recording in pristine condition, remarked that the tones of his father's voice were given back with startling fidelity by a truly miraculous invention. And now, at last, the prophecy is fulfilled. Enter Abraham Stoker. You might be more familiar with him as Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, who finally, as once promised, becomes part of our story. Stoker in his lifetime was more famous for being the legendary stage actor Henry Irving's assistant and theatre manager than he was for writing Dracula, or anything else for that matter. In fact, the mannerisms of Dracula were somewhat modelled on Henry Irving, as Stoker had it in mind that Irving would play the undead role in a stage version of Dracula eventually. In the end, for whatever reason, that never happened. After working closely together for over 30 years, the two men went their separate ways a few years after the publication of Dracula. 
and a few years after that, in 1905, Henry Irving died. In the following year, Stoker published a biographical work called Personal Reminiscences of Henry Irving. In the biography, Stoker relates an anecdote of once listening to Lord Tennyson read from a poem in the early 1890s. After the reading, Stoker retired for a smoke, as you do, along with Henry Irving and Hallam Tennyson. As they puffed away, Hallam brought out a phonograph with a recording of his father reading from the charge of the Heavy Brigade at Balaclava. That's not the Light Brigade, that's the Heavy Brigade. It's a different poem from the one we heard earlier. As the story indicates, Tennyson was one of the very few people in 1890 who had a phonograph and blank cylinders at their house. A few months earlier, an associate of Gouraud had left the machine with Tennyson, and he got into it. While he had the machine, he recorded complete or partial versions of around 12 of his poems, including, of course, the very recording that Brahm, Henry, and Hallam listened to over a smoke. About the experience, Stoker writes, It was strange to hear the mechanical repetition whilst the sound of the real voice, which we had so lately heard, was still ringing in our ears. It was hard to believe that we were not listening to the poet once again. He adds, The poem of Scarlet's Charge is one of special excellence for phonographic recital. One seems to hear the rhythmic thunder of the horse's hooves as they ride to the attack. The ground seems to shake, and the virile voice of the reader conveys in added volume the desperate valor of the charge. Stoker was clearly impressed with the potential and power of the phonograph, so much so that he featured it prominently in his science fiction novel Dracula. Dracula? Science fiction? That might be a bold statement for some, and depending on how you define these things, you might consider that incorrect. But I'm calling it science fiction here to emphasize a point. When we look back at the story today, particularly in our cinematic versions, we focus on its gothic and supernatural elements. But the text itself, and presumably Stoker, is as much, if not more, concerned with new technology than it is about ghouls and vampires. The book prominently features technologies such as the railroad, the telegraph, stenography, typewriters, and of course, the phonograph. Dr. Seward in particular uses the phonograph extensively to record his thoughts, research, and observations, and the text itself is often meant to be typewritten transcriptions of Dr. Seward's recorded cylinders. Although in this sense the idea of phonography helps structure the novel, the phonographs and cylinder recordings in and of themselves don't play a major role in the actual plot. Dr. Seward could have used more traditional writing technologies throughout the text, and the story would have still functioned in much the same way. That's not to say the phonograph is simply a gimmick in the story, as I feel Stoker and Dracula is consciously exploring sound and the interrelationships between technological and magical mythologies regarding sound. Nevertheless, it would have been possible to write the story without the phonograph at all. In part for that reason, I want to move away from Dracula and focus on a story where a phonograph plays a more central role in the drama of the story. It's a somewhat obscure Jules Verne tale published in 1893, five years before Dracula, called The Castle of the Carpathians, and I think you'll be surprised by how many elements of Dracula are present in the story, and I think you'll agree that Stoker must have read and admired the tale. Well, without further ado, it's story time. The story opens in a small Transylvanian village named Verst, situated under a seemingly abandoned and haunted castle owned by a mysterious Baron de Gortz. The villagers of Verst believe that the castle has been abandoned for many years, ever since Baron de Gortz left for Europe to pursue his irresistible passion for music, particularly the singing of the great artistes of the period. One day, the villagers notice smoke rising from the castle, and so, terrified, they hold a meeting at a local inn to discuss the situation. 
A brave young man from the village volunteers to investigate the strange happenings. But as soon as he does so, the meeting is interrupted by a disembodied voice, personally naming and warning the young man. Vern writes, Once came the voice which no one knew, and which seemed to come from an invisible mouth. It could not be the voice from a phantom, a supernatural voice, a voice from another world. Terror was at its height. It's soon revealed that the voice belongs to the Baron de Gortz himself. The Baron had returned to the castle from his travels with a mysterious friend named Orphanic, a sickly consumptive master of new technologies. Vern reveals that after returning to the castle, the Baron and Orphanic organized mechanical displays of lights and noises to keep the superstitious villagers in fear. To stay aware of goings-on in the village, Orphanic installed an advanced telephone line in the village inn, and through it he could both eavesdrop on conversations in the room, as well as, as we've already heard, project his voice into the room. Through this telephone system, the Baron learns that Count Franz de Telic, his hated rival, had unexpectedly arrived in Verst. Years earlier, they had both fallen for an Italian singer only referred to in the story as La Stilla. Whereas Franz fell in love with the woman as a complete person, for the Baron it was not the woman, but the voice which had become so necessary to his life as the air he breathed. Partly out of fear of the Baron, who had always attended her concerts with his face covered, La Stila decided to end her career as a singer and marry friends. However, before she did so, she gave one last performance. The Baron's hatred for friends only intensified as a result of these circumstances, and he was determined not to lose the voice that he loved. He therefore asked Orphanic to record her last concert with an advanced phonograph. During her last aria at the last concert, the Baron finally reveals his face to her, and upon seeing it, Lastila swoons and dies. Her last utterances are captured in what becomes the Baron's most treasured phonogram. Her body may have died, but her voice lived on in his recordings, and his love affair was able to continue through them. While Franz is sleeping at the inn, the Baron lures him into his castle by playing a recording of Lastila through his telephone system. Vern writes, It seemed as though a mouth came close to his ear, and invisible lips gave forth the expressive melody. Yes, it was really her voice, the voice I loved so much. Franz, certain that he had heard the living voice of Lastila, becomes convinced that she's being held prisoner in the castle. In Vern's story, the telephone and phonograph function in tandem in a state of highest perfection. Orphanic's recordings of Lastila perfectly captured her voice, and moreover, his phonograph and telephone system perfectly reproduced the voice as well. Franz experiences the sound of Lastila's voice as having lost nothing of its inflections, of its inexpressible charm, of its caressing modulations, that admirable instrument of its marvelous art, which seemed to have died with the artiste. In imagining these perfected capacities of the phonograph and telephone, Verne is looking into their future. Verne's story, perhaps like programs such as Black Mirror today, is a warning of the darker and more schizophrenic future that modern technology will create alongside its many benefits and marvels. In the story, he writes, The illustrious Edison and his disciples had finished their work. What was said, what was sung, what was even whispered, could be heard at any distance, and two persons separated by thousands of leagues could converse as easily as if they were side by side. To go with Las Dilas' recorded voice, Orphanic also creates a visual illusion, by using a crystal and a portrait inspired by her last performance. Using these, the Baron lures Franz deeper and deeper into his keep. Before destroying the castle with Franz inside, the Baron decides to have one last private concert in his home, but he didn't know that Franz was also at the gig. Verne writes, 
Lastila had begun to sing. Without stirring from his chair, Baron de Gortz had leant forward to listen. In the paroxysm of ecstasy, the dilettante breathed her voice as if it were a perfume. Such as he had been at the performances in the theatres of Italy, so was he now in this room, in infinite solitude, at the summit of this dungeon which towered over Transylvania. For the Baron, because the reproduction is perfect, there's no distinction between the original voice and the copy. And as that's all he ever loved of her, in that sense, it didn't matter that she had died. Franz interrupts the Baron's ecstasy by attempting to carry Lastila away, only to find her image vanish in a loud crash of shattered glass. The Baron gloats, Lastila again escapes, Franz de Telic. But her voice, her voice remains to me. Her voice is mine, mine alone, and will never belong to another. Through the phonograph, the voice had become an object capable of being owned. And in its material form, owning a voice was much like owning the soul of the person. Destroying a recording from this perspective was a kind of murder. Well, while all this is going on, Franz's assistant Rotsko manages, with the help of the police, to infiltrate the castle. He attempts to shoot the Baron, but his bullet instead pierces the cylinder containing the last aria of Lastila. The Baron uttered a terrible cry. Her voice, her voice, he repeats. Her soul, Lastila's soul. It is ruined, ruined, ruined. He repeats the word almost like a broken record. Vern adds, With its destruction his life was destroyed, and, mad with despair, he had resolved to bury himself under the ruins of his castle. As the story concludes, Orphanic surrenders his remaining recordings of Lastila, which are used to help Franz recover from a mental collapse induced by the events of the story, specifically his experience of encountering his love again, unexpectedly, after her death. For the convalescing Franz, his relationship to Lastila's recorded voice is presented as both highly nostalgic in that it connects him with treasured memories of the past, but also as a new experience in itself, in that each play of the cylinder has a new function of helping him heal. Well, it's time, I feel, to conclude this episode, which in turn concludes our discussion of death and the phonograph. In the late 19th century, the power of the phonograph put us in physical contact with the voices and sounds of the past, and that included, amazingly, strangers, celebrities, and loved ones who had died. It was an incredible cultural moment, and one that was celebrated and examined in both reality and fiction. Of course, when one really examines the experience, it's clear that reproduced sounds are not and never were the original sounds themselves, but only imperfect imitations. However, from the beginning the illusion was so compelling that recordings immediately became understood as the original moments returning to life. Part of the power of this technological moment is, I feel, lost on us, for we were all born in a world of disembodied voices and stored sounds that already made sense to us before we had to even think about them. But for all of human history before sound recording, the voices of the dead and talking objects were the stuff of legends, seances, dreams, and nightmares. The phonograph resurrected the voice of the dead to an audible relationship with the living. But in doing so, it contributed to the erosion of the factors that made the voice so unique and special in the first place, and we could probably say the same about musical performances. As the human voice became an object distinct from the body, capable of being stored, owned, mass-produced, and sold, our understanding of an emotional relationship with the human voice began to shift. As the 19th century drew to a close, the ambiguities between voice, spirit, presence, and death grew ever more entangled. 
As ever, thanks for listening and goodbye.